0: As a child, one of my favorite books was called Dealing with Dragons. It's by Patricia C. Reed, and I still think it's a wonderful book. One detail from it that I will never forget is that in the end, a female dragon becomes the ruler of all the dragons and is referred to as their king. The main character of the book, a human, asks why she would not instead be referred to as a queen since she is female. In response, the new king of the dragons says, King is the name of the job. It doesn't matter who holds it. Although that is a work of fiction from my childhood, it makes quite a bit of sense. King isn't just a person, it's a role. And that's why Tamar of Georgia ushered in a golden age for her country, not as a queen, but as a woman king. Tamar was born to rule. Of course, she was the daughter of a king, but there was more to her than that. Her father, George III, was a fickle man to say the least. Perhaps Cruel would be a more honest qualifier, really. When his nephew, who was indeed his rightful heir, tried to push his uncle aside to claim the throne for himself and begin his rule, George had him blinded, castrated, and imprisoned. But King George seemed to favor his daughter and recognized her to be both wise and strong. So much so that despite his obsession with power, he named her his co-ruler in 1178, when Tamar was just 18 years old. Tamar and her father co-ruled together for six years, and when George died in 1184, she continued on to be the sole ruler of the country, as king. You see, the Georgian word for king wasn't really gendered, it was just the term for an absolute sovereign. Still, Tamar was the first woman to hold that title. However, her reign wasn't met with full support. Opposition came, and from those closest to her, who perceived her gender as weakness. As the country had never had a female ruler before, the nobility questioned her legitimacy and also tried to use her age against her. The young queen was pushed into making important concessions to the nobility, including the removal of King George's appointees. You see, George III hadn't cared much for the rules and decorum that come with sitting on the throne. He had men of noble and common blood, and even serfs and foreigners as highly placed government officials. But Tamar would not be allowed to do the same, not if she truly wanted to stray from the cruel tactics her father used to ensure power without needing the support of the nobility. And they wanted to make sure that they were the ones calling the shots, and that meant that they needed to hold those government positions to protect their own interests, thus the aristocracy came into the center of Georgian political power again. However, that is not to say that Tamar did not check their power when they tried to grab for more. At one point, when the nobles, led by Cthulhu Arslan, suggested that the nobility should have the power to appoint government ministers and enact laws, she resisted. Tamar arrested Cthulhu and the rebellious nobles, and they all backed down when she offered to pardon them. Still, the power of the aristocracy peaked when they insisted Tamar marry to have a head for the army and provide a successor for the throne. They chose Prince Yuri, son of an assassinated Kievan Rus prince, who lived as a fugitive in the Northern Caucasus. Approved by Tamar's aunt, Rudusan, Yuri was brought to Georgia to marry Tamar in 1185. The prince was a skilled soldier, but that's about where his virtues ended. He was a deeply unpleasant person. One of his very first moves after the wedding, as soon as he was head of the Georgian military, as Tamar agreed to allow him to be, was to start warring against neighboring Muslims for little to no apparent reason. But I assure you, the faults of his character were much more than just political. He was cruel and abusive, both physically and verbally, not only to his slaves, but also to his wife. Top that off with frequent excessive drinking and publicly insulting Tamar for not bearing him a child? Well, all this and more was brought to light during his divorce proceedings when, in 1187, Tamar divorced Yuri and sent him off to Constantinople. You heard that right. Tamar divorced him. Not just sent him away or insisted they live separately or even imprisoned him to get him out of the way, she really divorced him. In the 12th century as the sovereign of an extremely Christian nation, at a time when, of course, the church expressly forbade it. Tamar convinced the bishops to officially dissolve their marital bonds and allow her to remarry, on the grounds that her husband was a drunkard and a fool, and had even been accused of sodomy. Tamar was able to keep the throne completely for herself because Yuri had never been a king, just a king consort. Afterwards, she chose her second husband for herself, David Soslan, an Alan prince and a great military commander, who became Tamar's primary advocate and was effective in crushing the rebellious aristocracy that united behind Yuri. David Soslan's status as Tamar's husband, as well as his presence in art, on charters and coins, was strictly dictated by the necessity of male aspects of kingship. But he remained a subordinate ruler who shared the throne with Tamar but had no independent authority, his power being derived from his reigning spouse. But as far as we can tell, this didn't cause any problems in their marriage. David was Tamar's favorite cheerleader, and he enthusiastically supported her reign at every turn. By all accounts, they balanced each other out beautifully. King Tamar and David had two children, Lasha Georgi the future King George IV and Rudusan, who later replaced her brother as monarch of Georgia, becoming another female king. But that didn't mean that Yuri wouldn't try to grab for power on his way out. He took advantage of the conniving Georgian aristocracy to do it. Yuri allied himself with a powerful party of Georgian nobles and returned to the country to lead a revolt against Tamar in 1191, four years after their divorce. The rebels proclaimed Yuri King of Western Georgia and captured several provinces in the southwestern Georgia during their campaign, but their success was short-lived. They were crushed by the queen's devoted general, Gamakrel Torelli, and in the battles of Mogvi and Eshruti. The rebels captured Yuri, but Tamar chose to pardon him, telling him to go on his way. However, He revolted again in 1193 and invaded Kakheti province, and of course, he was defeated again and was taken as prisoner. I wish I could tell you what happened next, but Yuri disappeared from history shortly after. We know nothing about his life after the Second Revolt, not even where he was buried. Once King Tamar succeeded in strengthening her power and regained a reliable support while she restored the expansionist foreign course of her ancestors, Georgians became active again under her reign. She managed to build her success based on the reform of her great-grandfather, David IV, also known as David the Builder, and the efforts of David III and Bagrat III, who sought for uniting Georgia kingdoms. One of the most remarkable events of King Tamar's governance was the establishment of the Empire of Trebizond in 1204, now modern-day Turkey. By the end of her governance, Georgia had attained the peak of its power and fame in the Middle Ages, Tamar had become king of the lands from the Black Sea to the Caspian Sea, from Sperry to Durband, and all the Caucasus up to Caesarea and Scythia. The trend of men hating her, however, did continue on. One of Tamar's warring neighbors was the Sultan of Rome, Soleiman II. Georgia's swift and widespread expansion was a threat to him, made all the more infuriating because it was under the rule of a woman king. In his declaration of war on Georgia, he sent her a letter that began with the declaration that, quote, every woman is feeble of mind, and ended with the threat that when he defeated her, she would convert to Islam and become his wife. Or, since he was so kind and good to those feeble-minded creatures we call women, she could instead remain Christian and become one of his concubines. Tamar chose secret option number three, crushing him entirely. Tamar effectively changed the meaning of the royal title, as it began to reflect not only her power over the regular subdivisions of her Georgian kingdom, but also introduced new elements that highlighted the Georgian crown's authority over the neighboring lands. Besides expanding Georgian territories, her governance brought in a golden age in culture. Locals continued to identify themselves with the Byzantine West rather than the Islamic East. While the nobles buried themselves with warfare, Tamar devoted much of her attention to Georgian culture. Under her reign, the country began to find its own national identity, a unique blend of East and West, and the building of copious domed cathedrals, some of which still stand today. Her life even served as the inspiration for the epic poem The Night in the Panther's Skin, which is to this day considered the greatest piece of Georgian literature ever made and a positive allegory for Tamar's reign. It pointedly says that, quote, the lion's whelps are equal, be they male or female. But I would like to include that although Tamar is frequently depicted as a warrior queen, there are no accounts of her ever actually accompanying her armies into battle. She was not a soldier, but she was undoubtedly a strategic genius and certainly worthy of the title of king. Thank you for listening. I will be back with another legendary woman to tell you all about next week. In the meantime, beware of lions.